The Gist is brought to you by Monster. Find employees who work as hard as you at monster.com hiring. Monster. Find better. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, April 8th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Yesterday, Bill Clinton was heckled by Black Lives Matters protesters, and they answered back in an 11-minute exchange, or as Bill Clinton calls it, a quip. The last two-term Democratic president, Bill Clinton, he came into office when crime was rampant, so he passed laws aimed at reducing crime, and indeed crime was reduced, but those laws had consequences, and we're grappling with that today. So the current two-term Democratic president inherited a much safer, much less deadly America, but his gun deaths show that's not enough. And this is 2016, so there is an app for that. If we can set it up so you can't unlock your phone, unless you got the right fingerprint. Why can't we do the same thing for our guns? That was Barack Obama selling an idea that he explicitly names in this talk with Anderson Cooper. Part of the proposal is developing smart gun technology. Smart guns seem, I don't know, smart. They're supposed to seem smart. When you put smart in front of something, it tends to have that effect. But does it really conjure the idea of the smartphone, or do smart guns bring to mind more, say, smart water, calling into question the smarts of those who buy into it? For one thing, lots of anti-gun advocates do not like smart guns. They fear that smart guns, so-called smart guns, would just lead to more guns. Yeah, it's smart, I'll buy one. I don't know about that critique, right? I think what's going on there might be that when you have the most impassioned advocates being impassioned, they usually advocate for the most extreme solutions, right? They decry half measures or palliative solutions or harm reduction, right? Like the abstinence education crowd, they hate the idea of contraception, alcoholics and Anonymous says you got to quit cold turkey. Anti-smoking advocates don't like e-cigarettes. And when it comes to any solution other than an outright ban on guns, some anti-gun advocates are a little like the anti-smoking crowd. They've been overcome by the vapors. This is not the best reason, I think, to be suspicious of smartphones. I just don't think they're that smart. It's not like there'll be all these different apps, all these different functions. There'll be one app. Shoot something. Shoot a guy. There is an app for that. Shoot a tin can. There's an app for that. Shoot a burglar. Oh, damn, he was a trick-or-treater. There's an app for that. Actually, I hear smart guns do have Flappy Bird. Oh, wait, I read that wrong. It's shoot a Flappy Bird. You can't quite. He's always going around in one place. There is this law in New Jersey that would ban handguns after smart guns are invented. Guess what that's done to the gun industry's incentivization program to invent a smart gun? Not good things. When it comes to guns, I don't trust smart technology to deliver solutions. NPR's Planet Money has been reporting on this all week. I've been thinking about it. But I just think that when it comes to guns, I don't trust smart technology to deliver the solutions. In fact, because of, but also in contrast to the 300 million dumb guns in America... I don't think smart guns have a shot. On the show today, it's an Antan twig and a lobstar shall rise. But first, regarding the taking of it, we're not gonna. Twisted sister, a life. As a small business owner, you work endless hours to pursue your goals. The sunrise, oh, it's not the sunrise. To you, that's an alarm clock. The rooster, that guy's a slacker. Your lunch, lunch. Lunch is for people with more than three and a half minutes. You need employees that work hard, too. 
like that rooster. Can't hire him. Go to Monster. Monster has 20 years of experience finding the right people for the right jobs. Monster builds custom hiring solutions. I'm not sure what that means, but if you're hiring, I bet you do. And I hear they have the best. Custom hiring solutions specific to your small business. Visit monster.com slash hiring to find employees who work as hard as you do and save 25% or more for a limited time. Monster. Find better. I saw this great documentary about a business collective, a bunch of entrepreneurs. They believed in their products. They knew the value of grassroots and they respected the customer and they never stinted on the quality of the product. The thing is, distributors just weren't interested. The gatekeepers, as it were, didn't think the product would sell. Still, the entrepreneurs pressed on. They weren't going to take it. They wanted to rock. Rock? Oh, yes. We're talking about Twisted Sister. The name of this story is We Are Twisted Fucking Sister. It is a documentary by Andrew Horn. I don't know if I'm on a podcast you could say the fucking. Is that is that okay? Is that the official name of the documentary, Andrew? That is. Just like playing a club like Hammerheads on Long Island, and I'm sitting here with J.J. French, who is uh, the guitarist. And he was, he owned the name Twisted Sister for many years. Do you still? Mm-hmm. All right. People think of Twisted Sister when they do, unless they're like me on Long Island. It was kind of baked into the DNA of uh, my youth. But they think of crazy frontman D. Snyder. They think of two songs on MTV. And this documentary literally ends before we even get to the songs that anyone except, you know, the real dedicated heavy metal fan knows. Andrew, why'd you make that choice? The story of becoming the band was, for me, a lot more interesting than the story of you know, the success and the fame and all of that. And actually, we've seen that. There's two versions of Behind the Music where they deal with that whole story. And Twisted Sister has their own DVD, Twisted Sister, the uh, the video years. And I think the VH1 Behind the Music, Ask Rise and Fall, is a little familiar. But I've never seen a story, Jay, like your band's story, where you really were so much smarter and so much more dedicated and less naive than many other bands because you were older, you were working on it, and you always kept your eyes on the prize, it would seem age and maturity which don't necessarily go hand in hand in my in my business kind of came into play i think if uh, if things had happened when we were 22 it would have been a very different story we would be this super successful band at night and then we'd be trying to get record deals during the day and being rejected yeah and we took from each rejection something because they're not always wrong just because someone says you suck it doesn't mean that you don't suck Possibly you may, you know, I mean, (laughs) possibly there may be things you should fix, you know, possibly. We were an 18-month pregnant woman at the time we were signed. The baby was so ripe, the baby came out an adult. Mm -hmm. The baby did not come out as a baby. The baby came out as a freaking adult, like and, with and a college bandex, with a college a education. And That's, we were so ready. It was we were so ripe. It yeah. was ridiculous. But do you think timing? I mean, at the time, glam was out, glitter was dead. But you guys never stayed away. You always wore the makeup. You always had different versions well, of that look. But then big hair came well, back. Well, well, go ahead. There was a time in 1981 where we just said maybe we should just go out without makeup. Like kissed. And we did, we did a photo shoot without makeup. And we sent out the pictures. But we started to question whether that whole period was dead. So you have to remember, 
to give this a little perspective to everybody, and I, and I want to put the word perspective in here for, for this example. Number one, when Twisted started, Nixon was president and Watergate hadn't happened yet. So let's first talk about how many years ago it was when the band started. But at the time the band got signed by 81... Video games were already being blamed for the destruction of rock music. Everyone's too busy playing Pac-Man, Waka 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 Waka, and Space Invaders. And there was front cover stories in Time Magazine saying rock is dead, music system business is dead, video games have taken over. So we were faced with this. And then ACDC comes along uh, with Back in Black and kind of single-handedly at least keeps rock and roll mm-hmm. alive. After, remember, this is all post-disco now. No one knows what's going on. The record labels are flailing around. It gave us a little bit of more breathing room right. during this period because between 1980 and 1982, ACDC was the hottest rock group in the world, and they were selling a million records a month. A month. A million records a month of their catalog. 18 million records in 18 months. This was the period of time where we were putting the pedal to the metal to get signed because we felt we had to do it. We had to do it. This was a shot. People cared about rock and roll again. And we, by virtue of me and Dee, because I never met a person as obsessed as Dee Snyder, who shared exactly my feeling about you never let the foot off the gas. You keep pushing it until you've broken through the, the floorboard of the car. It was that momentum that took advantage of the timing that we always seem to miss. Yeah. I showed Andrew once a rejection letter, a, 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 a synopsis of rejections that our magic collected. Oh, reasons, yeah, that's insane, the kinds of things yeah. that they, they used as reasons. Yeah, reasons why twisted Heels are too tall. I mean, just completely yeah, ridiculous like, things. Yeah. Hair too long, yeah. pants too tight, shoes too this, sounds like Kiss, Alice Cooper's dead, ba ba ba, over and over and over and over again. And I, my manager kept that for me for years. He finally said, by the way, this is a culminate, this is like a collection of all the reasons why you haven't gotten signed. And you sit there and you go, will you ever catch that wave? We, are you going to be around long enough to finally catch? And of course, we all know that we ultimately did. Yeah. So I want to ask you two things about what's not in the documentary. It's so clear that Twisted Sister is you. It's you and D. It's a great collaboration. He wrote songs. But you were the band. You brought D in. You're the driving force. And yet when it first gets uh, huge on MTV, he's on the cover. He's the icon, probably smart. But did your ego take a hit then? I think all the band did. And um, and D didn't help the situation. He could have. Yeah. He could have insisted. He could have taken that shot, and he did not. And I think that the resentment. You know, you look at some quarterbacks and football teams. The smart ones thank their linemen all the time. So without their linemen, they're going to get run over. Mm-hmm. But D never seemed to do that. And had he done it, had he really put his foot down. And done it, it probably would have been different. I think it sowed the seeds of uh, a lot of jealousies. You know, part of it was that. Part of it, you know, I have to, I hate that phrase to be perfectly honest because that following the, that line is usually the biggest bunch of bullshit. Yeah, and also causing the question, what have you been telling me up, up to this right. point? Yeah. But I can tell you this I don't write songs and I don't sing. So I knew my limitations. And if I wasn't as pragmatic as I was, we wouldn't be sitting here having this discussion about Twisted Sister. Other than your professional respect for D, what's your relationship like with him? I would say my relationship with D is much like the relationship of any band that's been together 40 years. And I know a lot of the bands, you yeah. know, the Scorpions, the Priests. I would say if a band's been together 40 years and doesn't hate each other's guts, they ain't worth shit. 
I think that we all acknowledge our strengths and weaknesses. I think we all understand when we get between the lines. In other words, we get on the stage and it's time to do our job. We do the job we have to do. Uh, me having to like or love somebody is completely irrelevant to the situation. And only in rock and roll do people care. In any other business, nobody cares if Bill Gates likes his partner. Yeah. And this one. But in rock and roll, everybody seems to want to know who likes people. Well, if you read Joe Perry's book, you'll understand what Joe well, Perry has to say. the illusion of brotherhood. Well, that's you know? always, and, yeah. and, but everybody should know now. There's enough books out there which says it's all bullshit. Yeah. I don't care what band it is. You know, Read Joe Perry's book. It ain't brotherhood. Read Keith Richards' book. It ain't brotherhood. You know, you read the stuff and you say to yourself, if I'm going to write a book, am I really going to do that? I don't really want it. I don't know if it needs to be. You know, there's a respect there. We've been through hell and back together. You know, we both filed for bankruptcy when we lost everything. We lost everything. Yeah. And we both kind of heard from each other's camp that we both lost everything. And then we did one thing, which I will say to D's benefit. In 1996, we got together and talked about it. We hadn't spoken since 1988. So it was eight years we did not talk. And um, uh, I did an audit and found out we sold a, a million more records. And so I had to make triple platinum albums. And I sent them out. And Dee's came back to me. And I went, great. You know, I'm going to be accused of taking his record. And through a mutual friend, I said, would you tell him? And I said, you know what? Just give me his damn number. And I left a message. And he called me up. And he said, what's up? And I said, I have your triple platinum record. And I said, you know, you should talk. So he came to my house. And we sat in my kitchen for six hours. And we hashed out everything. It was a brutal conversation. It, that should have been filmed. Mm. That conversation that we had had at that moment was one of the most extraordinary conversations I will ever have in my life. There were things that we said about each other, to each other, about our entire experience and dynamic, which I'm not going to repeat. And at the end of it, we both apologized to each other because there were things that were said and things that were felt on both sides, and we shook hands and and, uh, and kind of said that's it, you know. So, but in the documentary, you know, it wears its head with D. You can sort of see the seeds of this kind of thing, you know, in the documentary, even though the time span of it doesn't cover that period. Whatever problems there were, these were superseded by the focus that everybody had that they had to make as they had a goal. And they were going to reach that goal, and whatever else was going on was pressed down and held back to, so that it did not stop them. I mean, I'm correct in this, am I not? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. There was a very clear division of labor in terms of what J.J. did and what Dee did, and both sides really supported the other. So whatever feelings of mistrust, each one from my experience of talking to them at any rate, trusted the other to do what they were supposed to do. You know, Andy's point is well taken because a lot of what breaks down bands are drugs, alcohol, and financial issues. And that never happened with Twisted Sister. There was jealousy. Yeah. But uh, D has never questioned a single business decision that I ever made. You and know neither I mean? are you a drinkers. Or I, no, no, neither yeah. of us. No. So we're coldly straight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, but, but the interesting thing is like to this day, I mean, he's like, uh, you know, I'm responsible I, I, for all the payout. Like I sit there with the accountants and no one says boo because they know that's never been the motivation. The money thing was never the issue. Yeah. Never. I can just tell you, it's never been an issue. It's never been. It, so recognition. Yeah. So, uh, when people say, hey, uh, I know you're singer, you're singer, you're singer, and I hear this all the time, you know, oh, yeah, right, D-Signer, and they don't know my name. Well, uh, how famous am I? 
I'm actually just famous enough, uh-huh. you know, meaning I can get in any restaurant that I want yeah. and I can get a good doctor if I need medical care because I use my name. I don't know if I really want to be, you know, over the years I've learned uh, I don't need someone to stop me on the street and say, are you that guy? Because I'd rather not be that guy. Um, so it's in its own way, uh, it finally caught up with me that I'm not particularly enamored by, quote, the celebrity of walking down the street. I live on Man- in Manhattan on the Upper West Side. Do I really want somebody to stop me every, you know, and talk to me. And if I was at D's level of recognition, yeah. it probably would never end. And that has to suck. Yeah. That being said, I've walked around the neighborhood with JJ numerous times, and people do stop him on the street, but not because he's Twisted Sister, but because he's a truly neighborhood character. And he's been there <laughs> almost his entire life, and everybody knows him. Uh, that's everybody. true. That's true, uh, just, as just being John. That's all. Yeah. You know, and I never allow anybody to call me JJ above 72nd Street. Like, it's absolutely <laughs> illegal. If you call me that, but I will tell you something funny. I'm, so, and Andy will, Andy's heard me tell the story, but this is true. One of the stories in the movie is about the time this guy was taped to an amplifier in White Plains. I mean, this guy was claiming he wasn't loud enough, and basically we get him on stage and we duct tape him, like Jesus Christ, <laughs> to a Marshall stack. And the whole set, I'm turning around, and this is just another way you're killing a Tuesday night. I'm turning around, and the guy's like happy as a clown. <laughs> taped to the amplifiers the whole night like this and I'd look at him and he's giving me his thumbs up and I'm thinking to myself these are really sick people because who the hell would want to be on this stage and duct taped Jesus Christ like to these Marshall stacks and you know a couple of years ago I'm walking across Grand Central Station and a guy sees me and he runs up to me and he goes you're JJ right I go yeah. Who twist his sister four and F, right? I go, yeah. He goes, remember that night? That guy? I go, was it you? He goes, no, that was my best friend. And he still tells people that's the high point of his life. <laughs> so it's those are the kinds of stories that, you know, you can't you can't make that stuff up. We Are Twisted Fucking Sister is the name of the documentary. Andrew Horn directed it. I think, Andrew, we just heard a little bit of what compelled you to make this documentary. Yeah, yeah. Can't you see? Yeah, I love it. (laughs) J.J., let's call him J.J. French, is the guitarist, and uh, he's a founding member of Twisted Sister. Thanks so much. Thank you. I'd like to thank you for having us on and for and for helping to expose this story, which, by the way, should be mandatory for anyone who wants to be in a rock band. It because is. unfortunately, yeah. people don't understand the the. If I just may, for one second, yes. the 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 American Idol mentality of 15 weeks worth of struggle and you get a record deal is so perverse. You know, learn your craft, get great at what you do, and then try to do it. Don't already brand yourself before you have a product to sell. And now a word from Josh Levine, and within this word for Josh Levine, a word from me. Hi, this is Josh Levine from Slate Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen. I'm here with Stefan Fatsis. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. I'm here with Mike Pesca. Hello, Mike. Hi. And we all three of us will be on the same stage coming up on April 25th, Monday night in Washington, D.C. for a live show at the Woolly Mammoth Theater. It's very rare for us all to be together. It's going to be fun. Both of those things. It's rare for us to have fun and it's rare for us to be together. <laughs> so that's good. I'm glad we're getting both and done at once. And to be together and have fun at yes. the same time. Yes, that's right. So if you want to be with us, if you want to have fun, you can shoot that gap, thread that needle. 
be there April 25th at the Woolly Mammoth Theater in Washington, D.C. To buy tickets, you can go to slate.com slash live April 25th, Washington, D.C. Hang up and listen live. And now the spiel. It's an antan twig. So there's a theory out there that Donald Trump is misleading on purpose on his core issues. When the conversation turns to celebratory Muslims on rooftops or especially the wall, issues where he does well, his signature issues, his voters credit him for getting it right, pretty much no matter what he says. So his question is, well, how do I keep these issues in the news cycle? And he does this by getting things wrong, like issuing inaccurate or fact-free statements that get fact-checked to death and Pinocchios are issued and pants are deemed a flame or merely a smolder. But Trump knows that his crowd will just see all that as, oh, Trump's wall's back in the news. Here's a guy who's really serious about a wall. Carlo Collardi literary creations be damned. He's the guy who wrote Pinocchio. Well, in a similar play, I wanted attention and I had a question. I wondered how many people actually listen to the end of the show all the way through to the credits. I have always been curious about this. So yesterday, I purposefully said that Carl Yastrzemski waved fair a foul ball hit by the Boston Red Sox in 1975, very famous play. But of course, it wasn't Carl Yastrzemski. It was Carlton Fisk. And I wondered, would that reference go unnoticed? Indeed not! I got fisked by dozens of listeners, thereby demonstrating to myself that people really do listen to the credits. Either that or I made a boneheaded mistake that I don't want to own up to now. But it is the Antan Twig, which is our name for the three-week period wherein we issue corrections, acknowledge mistakes, debate the retractions, or rebut the detractors. I happen to be a rebut detractor. I think once you have the butt implants removed, there is no going back. Some women disagree. The first question I asked him was, how big could he make my butt? Okay, this is not that kind of rebuttal. It's this kind of rebuttal. Cindy Howard, H-A-U-E-R-T, Hort, Howard, wrote to me on my interview with John Ronson, and she issued a, a useful correction. She said it is illegal to shoot a lion in Botswana, which had a moratorium on trophy hunting of lions for over a decade. The Cecil the Lion story Mike referred to took place in Zimbabwe, where it is legal to trophy hunt lions. This particular hunt had some elements that called ethical hunting into question. However, the lion was collared. The lion was lured outside of his safe space. The lion was shot with a bow and arrow and died a long, painful death. Ay ay ay. She then goes on to say the analogy of posing with a fish for a photo doesn't quite hold up either because nobody eats lion meat. I appreciate the factual corrections. I acknowledge to Cindy, this was on Facebook, I said I don't even understand a lot of hunting culture in general, but blood sport tourism does seem to help the overall ecosystem. But I think the fish analogy does obtain because marlins, giant game fish, those are all but inedible. I would bet more people eat lion than eat marlin. In other African mistakes, I referred to the South African Supreme Court No, that was a remnant of apartheid. Jacob Zuma was smacked down by the highest court in South Africa now, the Constitutional Court, or as when it comes to Jacob Zuma's many country estates and add-ons, the Unconstitutional Court. And in yet another case of globetrotting garble, I said, say pan, when I meant Saipan. Eh, Sylavie.
So now we come to the lobster of the Antan twig, the listener, the letter writer, the tweeter, the Facebooker, the, the interactor who most embodies the high ideals of justiness, who adds to the discourse, who doesn't make me regret saying all those nice things about lions all that time ago. Jennifer Jansen emails, I listen to your podcast when I'm running on the Macedon Ranges in Victoria, Australia. Cool. We had a similar experience with our very own Captain Crazy Pants, Tony Abbott. He made some really stupid, inexplicably dumbass decisions and imploded. I always just figured that he was a dose of bad medicine that we all had to take. I figure that Trump is your bad medicine. I just hope that it all doesn't go bung and Trump ends up being your president. I hope it doesn't go bung either. But that is a good indication that Jennifer has called into and in fact heeded the advice of the Trump anxiety hotline. Remember we did that on the show. We're going to bring it back. We'll be reconvening that soon soon. Jennifer goes on. I was listening to your interview on torture. This is when I talked to game theorist John Sheeman using maths as a form of logic and applying it to torture. So Jennifer says she uses logic too. Mine stems from my work as an investigator. When you're interviewing or interrogating someone, you want information. And even if you're a bad investigator, you go in there with a preconceived idea of the information the interviewee can give you and you pump them for a confession, you're still wanting information. So when the interviewee has given you the information, the interrogation is over. So when you get the information, you need to stop. But then, Jennifer raises a good point here, if you know when to stop, if you know that you've received the information you needed, then why'd you torture them in the first place? You must have some idea of what the information was that that person had to give. Otherwise, you wouldn't stop torturing them, which made me think, yes, this is a really good point. It also points out that it is hard, if not impossible, to stop torturing at the right point. So even if there was a person with useful information, you will almost always over-torture them. And if there is a person without useful information, you will also almost always over-torture them. Indeed, any amount of torture would be over-torturing them. Jennifer writes, the concept is similar to accepted principles of good interviewing. Yes, that's true. Where you attempt to know the answer to most of the questions before you ask the interviewee, as that is the most reliable, probably the only reliable way to check for deception and know the right answers. I think she's right. I think she's right about a politician. I think she's right about, you know, making a person speak the truth. If it's more exploratory or probative. I recently interviewed Buzz Aldrin. I just had a lot of questions like, when you go to sleep, you ever think of space? I didn't really know the answer. I was just going there. As you'll hear on our interview, which is going to air in a couple weeks, I don't know how much Buzz played along, but he was good to talk to. Anyway, Jennifer ends. Just thought I'd drop you a quick note to thank you for keeping me company during my runs in Australia and to keep my anxiety levels about the vote for president at a tolerable level. They have anxiety in Australia. So I just love this idea that I'm podcasting here and I'm landing in the ears of someone running there, some anti-podal runner. They run backwards. Their feet are backwards, you know, antipodal. And then the person has this spark of in insight there. And I could tell you all about it here, right in your ears, wherever you are. And if that place is the Shire of Macedon Ranges, northwest of Melbourne, well, let me know. Or even if it's Canarsie, say hi to me. In either case, you, like Jennifer, can be named the Lobstar of the Antan Twig. That's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi does a good job, but she is not qualified to be executive producer of Slate Podcast, Steve Lichtai, who is not qualified to be chief content officer of the Panoply Network because that man is Andy Bowers, who, let's face it, and let me tone this rhetoric down, I'd rather have him in that job than Ted Cruz or Donald Trump running the Panoply Network. The gist, we're against smart guns, 
but four emotionally intelligent guns. Umpuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening.